Uh, we're winding down our sermon series this morning, uh, not wrapping up, but starting to wind down uh, the book of Genesis. And this morning is going to be a part two kind of message on the topic of forgiveness, the power of forgiveness. We've been tracking the life of the patriarch Joseph for uh, weeks now, and last week we observed his struggle to forgive his 10 older brothers who 20 years prior had sold him into slavery in Egypt, you remember. Joseph has now been promoted to vice pharaoh. He's number two in the land, and his brothers have now come to him, to Egypt, in search of food in the midst of a massive famine. God, the most important character in the whole story, has kind of been behind the scenes all along, subtly. Uh, but nevertheless has been sovereignly orchestrating all these events as we're going to see not only to work forgiveness and reconciliation into the life of this broken family, moreover to save a great multitude of people. And uh, we said last week that with any passage of scripture we want to know not just what it says, not just what it means, interpretation, but how we ought to respond, application. How does God want to use this, this part of his word to change me, transformation? And so this story isn't just ancient history. It offers us a model for how you and I today ought to or ought not to seek and to show forgiveness when we have wronged or we are wronged by someone else. More than anything, this story is going to point us ahead to Jesus, who is the better Joseph, who forgives our sins, who purchased our forgiveness with his precious blood on the cross, that's the gospel, that's the good news of Christianity. This prefigures that, foreshadows. But to quickly recap for those of you who missed part one from last Sunday, uh, we examined the first six of ten steps in the process of forgiveness. You see in your bulletins there, and you remember there are two sides of forgiveness. There's, you know, whether you're the offending party, Joseph's brothers in this case, or whether you're the forgiving party, like Joseph. It's indicated by the O or the F in your bulletin there. And they alternate back and forth. And so we, we've all found ourselves at various points in our lives, both in need of forgiveness as well as in need of extending forgiveness to someone else. And so to recap these six steps that we traced last week, number one, if you have offended someone, first thing, you need to go and work it out. Go work it out. 20 years later, Joseph's brothers, they still hadn't sought him out in repentance, but it's never too late to do the right thing. So we go work it out. Number two, if you're the one who is forgiving, then first of all, you need to listen. Joseph, remember, refused to lis listen initially to his brothers because of his deep woundedness by them. Secondly, forgiveness, we said, makes no demands. Joseph, he creates this elaborate list of hoops that he's going to make his brothers jump through, a series of tests uh, before he will forgive them. But true forgiveness, Christ-like forgiveness makes no demands, it attaches no strings. Thirdly, we have to soften our hearts. After letting his brothers sweat it out in prison for three days, Joseph eventually softens. He allows one of them to stay while the others return home. He's not ready to fully forgive them yet, but he's, he's softening. God is working on his heart. Next, number three, if you've wronged someone, you need to feel remorse. It's important part of the process. These brothers, they're still dealing with the guilt that, of having sold Joseph into slavery two decades ago, and yet grief uh, and guilt can be godly if they lead us to repentance. And so feeling remorse, brokenness for our sin is key. 
Number four, if, if your wrongdoer comes to you to work it out full of remorse, then fourthly, we said, you give them grace. Joseph not only allows his brothers to return home, he sends them with saddlebags full of grain, provisions, free of charge for the trip. Likewise, we ought to give others grace, even when they don't deserve it, right? Even when they've wronged us because of how much grace we know that we have received in Christ. Number five, an offender has to process his or her guilt. Joseph's brothers, they're clearly still working through that. But you process your guilt, then you take responsibility. Judah, uh, fourth oldest brother, he convinced his father Jacob to let them take Benjamin, the youngest brother, with them back to Egypt, as Joseph requested, because Judah took personal responsibility for Benjamin's life. Take responsibility. And thirdly, process guilt. Take responsibility. We make amends. The brothers don't return to Joseph empty-handed. They want to settle their account. They want to make things right. Likewise, you and I, we need to offer more than an apology. Talk is cheap. We seek to make amends. Finally, number six, we said we need to give even more grace. Joseph, still in disguise, mind you, he invites his brothers into his palace to dine with him. And we left with that picture last week. Much like Jesus, the better Joseph, who offers us a seat at his heavenly banquet table. And so to those six steps to forgiveness this morning, we're going to add an additional four. We're going to pick back up in chapter 43, verse 18 in the middle. And we're uh, running all the way through the middle of chapter 45. We've got a lot of ground to cover. But before we do anything else, I want to go to the Lord once again this morning in prayer. Father, would you illuminate the study of your word this morning? Would you open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, our hearts and minds to receive the message that you have for us, the good news of forgiveness? That God, while we were yet sinners at our most unforgivable, you sent, you sent Christ to die for us. And that because of that, the forgiveness we've received, it enables us, empowers us to forgive others. Jesus, we thank you for what you've done on the cross for us. We pray that you might use this exhortation this morning to strengthen us, embolden us, uh, to better follow you this week. And if anyone here does not know you, pray especially that you would soften their heart, God. Would you break them? Give them the grace of brokenness, that they might admit their need for forgiveness and a Savior and find one in Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. Dive right in, number seven. When you have wronged someone and you're seeking forgiveness, the seventh action item is to come clean. Come clean. We pick the story back up in chapter 43. Joseph is still incognito. incognito. He has just invited his brothers into his palace. They don't know. He just wants to have lunch with them. They assume he wants a reckoning for the money that they found in their saddlebags uh, on the return trip to Canaan in the prior chapter. And so in verse 18, we hear, the men were afraid because they were brought to Joseph's house and they said, it is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in so that he may assault us and fall upon us 
to make us servants and seize our donkeys. Remember, that's what guilt does. Guilt turns grace into grief. And so they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, Oh, my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food, not to steal it. We're going to buy it. When we came to the lodging place, we got home, we opened our sacks, there was each man's money in the mouth of his sack. We promised we paid you, I don't, we don't know how it got there. Our money was in full weight, so we have brought it again with us. We're going to return it. And we brought other money down with us to buy more food. We do not know who put our money back in our sacks. They come clean. They could have tried to hide the money that they found. They could have chalked it up to God's grace. But with the guilt still weighing on their consciences, they decide this must be God's punishment instead. And so we need to fess up. Hey, we found the money. God's honest truth. We didn't steal it. This step, step number seven, coming clean, it may be the hardest step in the whole forgiveness process, at least for uh, the offending party. I've shared with you all uh, some of my, pa- my own past struggles, continued struggles in some ways with sexual sin. By the way, I don't love you know, sharing my brokenness with the church that I pastor, opening up about how much of a sinner I am, I do it for three reasons. Number one, so that no one is ever tempted to put me on a pedestal because God knows I don't deserve it and God knows I, that is a weight I can't bear. I would, say, I would say that I'm just like you, but that would be an insult to you. I'm probably far worse of a sinner than, than most of you all are. Identify with the, past, the Apostle Paul's least of pastors, not worthy to be called a pastor, not worthy to be called a Christian. Then again, who is, right? But by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace toward me is not in vain. The second reason I keep sharing my sin from the pulpit is because it's important for my own personal ongoing spiritual health. We read Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen last week. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And I think that's equally true, maybe especially true, of church leaders, pastors. And thirdly, and most importantly, I share my sin with you as a testimony to God's faithfulness in my life. And as an example of how I think God wants you to engage personally and respond to his word as we study it. Remember, not just observation, interpretation transformation. And so in that vein, I just share, I never forget the moment years ago when Polly, my wife, confronted me and said, Will, I think you have a problem. And by the grace of God, 99 times out of 100, if she had come to me saying that, it wouldn't have gone well. But instead, this time, By the grace of God, instead of arguing, instead of getting defensive, instead of gaslighting her into believing she's really the one with the problem, I said, you know, I think you're right. And I started this process of coming clean, of stepping into the light about my past, about my struggles. But by far the hardest part in that whole process was what they call full disclosure. So in the 12-step recovery process, step four is to make a searching and fearless moral inventory. Basically, list all your sins. Let me tell you, that is not fun. But you know what's even less fun? Step number five. 
we admit to God, to ourselves, and to another person the exact nature of our wrongs. That is even harder. James 5.16 commands us, confess your sins to one another. The Catholics got that much right. I don't know if it has to be a priest. Confess your sins. It's not a suggestion. Do it that you may be healed. That is harder. Making the list was hard. Sharing the list with my wife, who I had sinned against, that was harder. But it's so vitally important to bring your sin into the light. Perhaps some of you need to come clean this morning. Maybe it's not something major like my sin. Maybe it seems small to you. Honey, I lied. I know I said I spent $90 on that pair of shoes. It's actually $190. 290 I don't know. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's why we have a time of confession every Sunday here at West Hills. So you never can go more than a week without being forced back to your knees to confess your sins to the Lord. You can come clean and experience forgiveness this morning. Step into the light. Number eight, if your offender comes to you remorseful, taking responsibility, coming clean, seeking to make amends, after you have given grace, and after you have given even more grace, we said, then step number 8A is to give lavish grace. Lavish, profuse, given in great amounts without limits. Verse 23, the brothers are afraid that they're going to get the axe, but Joseph's servant replies, peace to you, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. Remember, Joseph's a type of Christ. Your God has done it. Then he brought Simeon out to them. Poor Simeon, who's been rotting away in custody for two years now. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they washed their feet, when they had given their donkeys fodder, Remember, worldwide famine, people starving to death, Joseph's feeding his brothers donkeys. This is lavish grace. They prepared the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard they should eat bread there. They're going to eat at his own table. Almost. Verse 34, portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. They drank, they were merry with them. Not only does Joseph not kill them, that's what they deserve. Mercy is not getting the bad thing you deserve. But grace is even better than that. Grace is getting the good thing you don't deserve. Joseph brings them in. He gives them water, food, food for their donkeys. Even has his servant wash their feet. Does that remind you of anyone else? Right? Who personally fed and washed feet of his own betrayer, Judas. 
That's forgiveness. That's lavish grace. Who showed not just mercy, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do, but grace. Truly, I tell you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus is the better Joseph. I told you last week, Joseph sat his brothers at the kitty table. Verse 32, they served Joseph by himself and his brothers by themselves and the Egyptians who ate with them by themselves because the Egyptians couldn't eat with the Hebrews for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. So they won't eat with Hebrews. They know Joseph is a Hebrew, but uh, the brothers don't. And he's still trying to carry on this charade of being an Egyptian. So nobody can, can eat with anybody. It's all very complicated the seating arrangement have you ever been at a dinner party like this like a wedding where the bride's parents are divorced they can't be in the same room as one another but the groom's mom had a falling out with her sister and so they're not on speaking terms and then uncle joe he gets kind of racist when he gets a couple drinks in him so you can't sit him next to right and, and so the whole thing it's very complicated you know where it's not going to be complicated the seating arrangements at dinner in heaven, right. there's only one table. There's no separate seating. At the Lord's banquet table, I was texting with someone else this past week, upset with me, leaving the church. I said, can we at least sit down and talk things out, you know, even if you end up leaving the church? So I don't want it to be awkward if Jesus decides to sit us next to each other in heaven for the rest of eternity. The wedding feast of the Lamb there's just one table. That is lavish grace. We get to sit at Jesus' table. What would it look like for you to give lavish grace to someone who has wronged you? Jesus said, forgive 70 times, seven times. Maybe it means forgiving you know, that really difficult family member who keeps committing the same sin that he or she has committed 490 times already against you. Maybe it means not just forgiveness, but reconciliation. We'll talk about that in a second, but God sometimes gives us an out. If you're looking for one, I think the Bible makes exceptions to its own no divorce rule of thumb in the cases of sexual immorality or abandonment. Maybe lavish grace means I am so hurt by you and I have every right biblically to leave you, to divorce you, but by God's grace and with his help, I'm willing to try and make this marriage work. The story is told of Corey Ten Boom who two years after her release from a Nazi concentration camp while she was speaking at a church in Munich came face to face with one of her former guards who had regularly stripped and beaten and mocked her every day for years. She recalls their conversation. He said, you mentioned Ravensbrück in your talk. I was a guard there. But since that time, I have become a Christian. I know that God has forgiven me for the cruel things I did there. But he asked, Will you forgive me? And he held out his hand. She said, I stood there, I whose sins had again and again to be forgiven and could not forgive. 
My sister Betsy had died in that place. Could he erase her slow, terrible death simply for the asking? She writes, Jesus, help me, I prayed. I can lift my hand. I can do that much, but you have to supply the feeling. So I thrust my hand out. And as I did, an incredible thing took place. The current started in my shoulder and raced down my arm and sprang into our joined hands together. And then this warm, healing feeling seemed to flood my whole being, bringing tears to my eyes. I forgive you, brother, I cried with all my heart. For a long moment, we grasped each other's hands, the former guard and the former prisoner. And I had never known God's love so intensely as I did then. But even so, she says, I realize it was not my love. I had tried, but I didn't have the power. It was the power of the Holy Spirit. Friends, that is the power of forgiveness. That is lavish grace. Supernatural grace. But there is a second half to point number eight. Somewhat counterbalances it. I told you last week, forgiveness is different from reconciliation. Forgiveness is choosing not to hold on to the past. Reconciliation is walking forward into a new future together. And even as Joseph lavishes abundant grace on his brothers and forgives the past, he's working to forgive the past, he still tests their hearts before being reconciled with them. And I believe that that is biblical. We are into chapter 44 now. We hear, then Joseph commanded the steward of his house, fill the man's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack, and put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, Benjamin. Verse 3, the men were sent away with their donkeys. They had gone only a short distance from the city. Now Joseph said to his steward, up, follow after the men. When you overtake them, say to them, why have you repaid evil for good? Is it not from this cup that my Lord drinks and by this that he practices divination? Syphomancy, using a cup or goblet to predict the future, was a common form of divination in ancient Egypt. Joseph is once again here playing the part of the pagan, he's pretending. This time he is outright lying in the process, trying to make the silver cup out to be his most prized possession. The, 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 the great leaders prized because it'd be like stealing President Biden's face mask or President Trump's giant portrait of himself. Um, Joseph's brothers, they're, they're going to be in big trouble here. Verse 7, they said to him, Far be it from your servants to do such a thing. Whichever of your servants is found with it shall die. And we also will be my Lord's servants. But verse 10, the servant said, He who is found with it shall be my servant, but the rest of you shall be innocent. Do you see what Joseph's doing here? He wants to see if his brothers have truly changed or if, when their necks are on the line, will they sell their own brother up the river once again? Are they going to do poor Benjamin like they did Joseph 20 years ago? After all, he is daddy's new favorite. Maybe they're jealous. Maybe they've been waiting for an opportunity to throw him under the bus just like they did Joseph. Verse 11, then each man quickly lowered his sack to the ground and each man opened his sack and he searched beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. And here's the moment of truth. 
What are they going to do? The other brothers. Verse 13, then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey and returned to the city. They went back with Benjamin and the servant to Egypt. He had given them an out. The rest of you, you're going to be innocent. They could have said, hey, good luck, Benji. It's been nice knowing you. We're headed back to Canaan with our grain. We're just going to tell dad that you got eaten by more wild animals. Somebody's got to get this wild animal uh, problem under control in Canaan. But they don't. They don't do that. They don't, they don't take the out. They pass Joseph's test. They stick with their younger brother because they truly have changed. They've changed. Listen, you might forgive someone who wrongs you without changing. You should. Without remorse, without repentance, without turning from their sin, we ought to forgive that person. It can be hard, but we ought to do it. But you can't reconcile with them. You shouldn't reconcile with them. Forgive the past, but there's not a path forward with that kind of person into the future. I had to make another difficult call this past week. It was a long week, first week back from vacation, but it, apparently we had a verbal altercation here in the middle of our foyer during the 9 a.m. worship service last Sunday while I was up here preaching about forgiveness. I had to make this call to explain why, yes, of course, the church is a place of grace, of forgiveness. But listen, if you're going to stay at this church, brother, you cannot keep hurting people. You're going to have to change. We're not going to have you attacking people on Sunday mornings. Forgive the past, but if there's going to be a path forward, you've got to change. God loves us right where we're at, right? But he loves us too much to leave us there. Matthew 18, Jesus instructed, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, if he will not repent, will not change, if there's no remorse, repentance, then there's no reconciliation. In fact, Jesus says you are to let him be to you as a Gentile or a tax collector, outcast. Put him out of the church. That can be really tough to discern, can't it, practically? when there is hope of a restored relationship with that person who has hurt me, and when I'm merely being called to forgive them and let go of the past, but there's no hope of a shared future. Because the decisive factor really is repentance. And it can be really hard to judge repentance in another person's heart, can't it? Sometimes, like Joseph, you test for it. Someone might have to earn your trust back. I think that's, that's appropriate, that's wise. Number nine, if you've wronged someone badly enough, you need to be willing to lay down your life in recompense. Watch how Joseph's brothers react back in Egypt. Verse 14, when Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, they fell before him to the ground. And Judah said, what shall we say to my Lord? i got no excuses. I have no other explanation. How can we clear ourselves? I can't. God has found out the guilt of your servants. Judah assumes that God himself must have placed the cup in Benjamin's sack to repay them for what they did to Joseph all those years ago. This is it. This is, this is our punishment. Behold, we are the Lord's servants. Both we and he, Benjamin, also in whose 
hand, the cup has been found. But Joseph tests them one more time, just to be sure. Verse 17, he says, Far be it from me that I should do so, that I should take all of you into servitude. That's not fair. Only the man in whose cup was found shall be my servant. But as for you, go in peace to your father. Now he's not just giving them an out. He's telling them. It wouldn't be right. It wouldn't be just for me to keep you two. You go. I'll just keep Benjamin. How are they going to respond? Judah launches into a 17-verse long monologue that spans the rest of the chapter, explaining how their father Jacob didn't want to risk sending his favorite son Benjamin along for the trip in the first place, and that Jacob couldn't survive the loss of yet another favorite child. Remember, he thinks that Joseph is dead. So Judah concludes in verse 33. Here's the key. Now, therefore, please let your servant, me, Judah, remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Do you see what Judah is doing here? Judah is willing to lay down his life. He is interceding. He's an intercessor for his brother. And why is he doing it? It's out of love for his father. Friends, that's about as clear a picture of the gospel as you're going to get in all of the Old Testament, 2,000 years prior to Christ. It's, it's probably why God chose to send Jesus in the line of Judah because of, again, this prefiguring, this type of Christ that we see, his self-sacrificial intercession for his brother out of love for their father. Do you know that in the same way Jesus loved his father so much. He would pray, Father, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, your will. He loved the father so much, he was willing to lay down his life for you, for me, his brothers, his sisters, in our place as our intercessor, intermediary between us and God. Jesus is the better Judah. He's the lion of Judah. Judah was guilty concerning Joseph. Remember the whole idea to sell Joseph into slavery in chapter 37. Who did it come from? It was Judah's idea. He was guilty. Judah, Judah's got blood on his hands. And yet Benjamin was innocent concerning this silver cup. He hadn't actually stolen it. And while Judah's sacrificial offer here is, is, is nice, Joseph doesn't even take him up on it. He's going to let all the brothers go free anyway. But Jesus is the better, Joseph, uh, better Judah because Jesus was truly innocent, unlike Judah. He was the spotless, spotless lamb of God. You and I were truly guilty, unlike Benjamin. We didn't deserve his intercession and yet Jesus didn't just make a nice offer to prove that he was willing to lay down his life for us. He did it on the cross for you. Six excruciating hours as he bore, bore the full weight of every sin, of every believer who has ever lived. 
and the separation that our sin causes between us and a perfect heavenly father, Jesus endured that for you because he loves you. We wronged him and yet Christ laid down his life for us. And so the least that you and I can do in return when we have wronged someone else is to be willing to lay down our lives. If you have not done, have you ever had to do that? Have you ever found yourself in the posture of Judah here, flat on your face before someone who you recognize has every right to step on you while you're down? They may even have the motivation to do so because you have deeply hurt them. That is a vulnerable place to be, begging for forgiveness, throwing yourself on someone's mercy. But Judah is so genuinely broken here that he doesn't care. He says, Vice Pharaoh, my life is in your hands. Do with me as you see fit. Utter humility. Have you been there? Or do you have too much self-respect? Too much pride? I'm convinced most people will miss heaven because they have too much self-respect. They're going to see people on the narrow, not-so-popular path, all sprawled out on their faces, rending their garments, crying out, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And they're going to think, dude, get it together. You, you are embarrassing yourself. I don't know what, where that path leads. That is not for me. As they pass on by on the much wider, more comfortable path that leads to destruction. True repentance says, my life is in your hands. I, I surrender all. I know what I deserve, but I'm asking you, I'm begging you, humbling myself, humiliating even myself, begging you to show me mercy instead, forgiveness. And then on the other side of that, when your offender comes to you like that, laying down their life, do with me as you see fit, how ought we to respond as believers? Three final imperatives here as we close. Number one, let it go. Elsa sang it best, let it go. To me, this, this may be the best way of, of illustrating, giving a word picture of what forgiveness does. Forgiveness lets go. Remember the title, Power of Forgiveness. When someone has wronged you, and they come to you seeking forgiveness. In a very real sense now, the tables have turned. You have the power. You have power over them. You hold the gavel. They are putting the gavel in your hand, right? You are the arbiter of their sentence. And in our flesh, we want to beat them over the head with it, don't we? Make them really feel the weight of what they did. Forgiveness. Let's go. The gavel. Joseph finally lets go. Chapter 45. He's been up and down, ready to forgive. Then on one more test, ready to forgive a silver cup. But chapter 45, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by. His emotions were out of control. Watch out. Here comes the waterworks. He cried, make everyone go out from me. Just my family. Family meeting. 
So no one stayed with him when Joseph, he didn't, of course, say family. That would have ruined the punchline. He said, no, leave the Hebrews, y'all go. He said, he wept aloud, verse 2, so that the Egyptians heard it, and the whole household of Pharaoh heard it, the palace over. Very emotional guy. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? His brothers couldn't even answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. You can imagine what they're thinking. Their hearts sank. Oh, no. This is Joseph? Oh, we're done for. But watch this, verse 4. So Joseph said to his brothers, come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I mean, they probably got to be watching their heads. They're coming near, right? He said, I'm your brother, Joseph, who you sold into Egypt. And here's the most amazing part. Now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. He says, I know you sold me like a piece of property, a slave, pretty much one of the worst things you can think up doing to another human being. But Joseph says, you can quit beating yourselves up about it now. 20 years is enough, right? Let it go. I'm letting it go. Now you guys, y'all can let it go. Why? How can Joseph let it go? Because number two, Joseph trusts in God's redemption. Redemption is God's power to take evil and turn it and use it for good instead. Just listen to how Joseph processes the past 20 years of his life. If anybody who has every reason to, to whine, moan, and complain about all that's happened to him, the pit, the slavery, the, the Potiphar's wife, the prison, all of it. But listen to the lens through which Joseph processes his, his life story, his testimony. He said, God sent me before you to preserve life. God did it. For the famine has been in the land these two years. There's five years yet to come in which there will be no plowing or harvest. So God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here. But God, if you didn't know better, you would think this is like some stage of grief, like denial or something. It's not just a river in Egypt, right? Where Joseph, yeah. You would think that it's, this is like he's repressed what they did to him. If he went to some sort of counselor, they would diagnose him with something. He said, no, 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 it wasn't you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler of all the land of Egypt. So hurry up and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. You know, it's a lot harder to stay mad, to stay bitter, to refuse to forgive if you believe, if you truly believe that nothing in your life happens outside of God's providence, Ephesians 1.11, and that God is working all of it together, Romans 8.28, for your good. I stayed mad 
my, my father, my heavenly father, God, both for years because I refused to believe those two truths about God, that he is both sovereign and that he's good. I thought, it's got to be one or the other. Either God has the power to bring my dad back and won't because he doesn't love me, or he just can't do it. What kind of God is that anyway? He can't be both sovereign and good, and it took me years to realize that what seemed like the worst thing, unforgivable thing, unredeemable thing, no good could come from this thing that had ever happened to me was actually one of the best things that could ever happen to me because God ultimately used it to break me and to bring me to him. Where have you seen God's redemption in your life? His supernatural ability to take the very worst that life throws at you, that God allows in your life, and use it for your good, to grow you, stretch you in ways you never thought possible, and to love you and comfort you through it. When you accept that, when you decide to let it go, and to trust God's redemption. God, I don't see what you're doing here. I can't understand it. I can't understand how, how you could possibly get glory and how this could be good for anyone. This thing that, that, that just happened to me. When you by faith, that's why they call it faith, right? If it's seen, it's not faith. Faith is believing in things unseen, what you hope for. God, I want to believe that you're still there, that you're still good, that you're somehow going to work this together for my good. When you do that, when you let it go and you trust in God's redemption, that he's using it for your good, then God frees you. Lastly, point number 10, part C. He frees you to give ridiculous grace. I'm running out of adjectives. Give grace, give more grace, give lavish grace. Just give stupid grace, absurd grace, unthinkable, incredible, unbelievable, supernatural grace. Verse 10, Joseph says to them, you shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. What a beautiful picture, line. You, you, you deserve to be cast out far off. Grace, forgiveness says, I want to bring you near me. I want to draw near to you again. You and your children, your children's children, your flocks, your herds, all that you have, there I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household, all that you have, do not come into poverty. He says, I'm going to take care of you. I'm not just trying to send you grain and get you out of my life again. I'm going to take care of you. I love you. So hurry up, bring my father here. And he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. That makes sense. Benjamin didn't do anything. He was a toddler when they sold Joseph into slavery. But what about the older brothers? Verse 15. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, his brothers talked to him. Visible picture, 
forgiveness, reconciliation. No one gives grace better than the person who realizes how desperately in need of it he himself was and who found it so abundantly in Christ. Joseph needed grace in his despair in the pit. He needed grace in his desperation in Potiphar's palace. He needed it again in his prison cell. And at every turn, God has met him with yet more grace. Brothers and sisters, if you were in Christ this morning, that's your story. That's the only reason you're here, but by the grace of God. Your story is, at every turn, God has met you with yet more grace. How could we, who have received so much grace, forgiveness, not also freely give it to others. We Christians ought to be professional forgivers, professional grace givers. Go and do likewise, Jesus said. Let's pray.